That's bell number two. And our mic is working, so we're ready to begin. Thank you, Mr. Bo, for that. Uh, good morning and welcome. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, we've been spending now the last previous three weeks going through the book of John. Um, it may be a little different than what you've done in the past. Instead of a sequential order, we're trying to hit a thematic approach, trying to hit highlights as we go through the book of John um, to give you an overview of the book. Our intention is by no means to go into great depth. That will take you years of your life. Um, but we're just hoping to be tour guides. And as you will notice today, Mr. Bob is again not here. Uh, that is by design. That was pre-planned. Hopefully he'll be around next week. So if you have any complaints, make sure to wait till next week when he's back and let Bob know. Uh, I can give you his home phone if you'd like. <coughs> so this week, we're going to focus in on uh, misunderstandings and irony in the book of John, which is not generally a topic you ever kind of hear mentioned about the Bible in general, because uh, our hope is to understand it better. Yet John spends an excessive amount of time showing lots of misunderstandings. But before we get into, assuming this will work, before we go too far, um, as we've been doing each week, we're trying to see what you all are experiencing as you read through the book of John. And I just want a disclaimer this moment. It is not an intention to fill time. Our objection here is not because we don't have enough material to talk about, so we're trying to get you to give us feedback. The intention is that this is, John is a book of a witness. He saw Jesus' life, and he put those into words, and millions of billions of people have now read them, and the power of witness is very strong. It moves people, and it changes lives. So this opportunity is primarily for the collective here, for the unification of us, to talk about what we experience as we encounter the living word of God. And so if there's anyone who had um, anything exciting that they saw while reading John, any experiences they had, um, alternatively, anything that they didn't like, something that confused you or maybe you misunderstood, um, feel free to share, and that's what this time is for. I'm going to steal yours, Liz, if you don't want to say it. Um, so Liz made the comment before class that she noticed a lot of the I am statements in the book of John. And there's a lot in there. Um, there's specifically, generally con um, considered to be seven that directly relate back to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus is making a huge theological claim when he makes those statements that I am the God of the universe. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. And then he's saying things like, I am uh, the bread of life. I am the lamb. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. He makes all these statements about who he is, and he's saying things very powerful. Yes, Tony. When, when you think about your study of the Old Testament, Luke John is a great complainer. You read it, you reminds you of all this stuff regarding deity and God's amazing blessings. Yeah, so Tony's comment is that as you read through John, you're instantly drawn back to the Old Testament, like we touched on last week, uh, that you can't help but be drawn back to it, and the deity and the, and the divinity of who Jesus is as God. I mean, John is constantly saying, hey, remember what you learned, you know, if you were an early Jewish Israelite, remember all the things you learned in the synagogue and from the Torah, um, and from the Ketuvim and from the Nevi'im, as we talked about last week, is that all of that points to Jesus. Um, you can't, you know, I think... I, mentioned last week is you re my first reading through John was wow there's something I missed I need to know and it just forces you to be hungry to go back to the Old Testament and read some more so thank you for that uh, anybody else 
Going once, going twice. And as you know, we've been trying to filter everything we read in the book of John through John 20, verses 30 through 31, because John definitively gives us a statement of why he wrote this book. And it reads, So then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Every sentence, every word, every story, every thought, every concept that John tries to pull onto your mind is all filtered through this phrase. The whole intention of his book, why he took the time, who knows how long, to put it on paper or on parchment, um, was because he wants you to believe that this man from Nazareth, who so many rejected, who so many didn't believe in, is the promised Messiah who comes to save the world, who gives redemption to humanity, who fixes the brokenness of our lives and our societies. This is him. Listen to him. Believe in him. And that by believing, you now have life in his name. And we're going to touch on life in the weeks to come, I think next week, so stay tuned for that one. But today, we're going to focus on misunderstandings and irony. And I think it may be um, presumptuous of me to think that everyone knows what those words mean, so I thought I'd take a moment to just explain them. Misunderstanding, by sort of intuitiveness, means you don't understand something. But I want to add a caveat, and that's what the underline says, is that you need uh, misunderstanding is a failure to understand something correctly in the manner in which it is meant to be understood. So you might think you know something now, but you don't realize you don't understand it because you have the wrong context for it, because you don't actually understand the true meaning behind what those words are trying to imply. So that's going to be huge as you read through John. You're going to see it over and over again, and we're going to show some examples today. Um, irony, I think, is a little less intuitive. Um, we use it a lot. That's ironic. You know, you've heard that phrase over and over again. But the way it's more definitively defined is it's the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite. So when you say one thing, but you mean the opposite of that. And the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to the character. So for those of you who spent time in John, you realize that you're on the inside page. Like you're in like the niche group and he's talking to you. There's the Jews didn't understand, the Pharisees didn't understand, his own apostles didn't understand most of the time, but John's giving you clues. Hey, this is why this is that. Hey, this is what this means. Hey, don't misunderstand. This is what he meant. So all through John, you find these ironic statements and, and he's trying to give you the inside story of what's happening because the people in the story have no clue what's going on. They're thoroughly confused. But John wants to make sure that you grasp what he's trying to convey. So keep those definitions in your mind as we move on. And I just thought this was too funny not to share because uh, it captures to me both misunderstanding and irony. Uh, and for those of you online, I apologize you can't see, but it's a street sign and it says, airbags save lives, place children in rear seat. So if you, if you are coming to this, the misunderstanding is, well, do airbags save lives or not? Because you don't want my kid near it. But then the irony is both statements are true, although they seem to contradict each other. So if you, I found a lot of examples online of irony. It was pretty fun to search through those, but this one made me chuckle. So sort of give you a context of where we're going. <coughs> so when you're in John, uh, and I'm going to give you a really small list. I don't intend for you to be able to read that because this is just what I pulled out in a few minutes. 
it's it's pervasive throughout the whole book. But a few misunderstandings I want to hone in on, which I think are are classic uh, as you go through John. In the story in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, and Jesus is talking to him, and he starts explaining to him, unless you're born again or born from above, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, well, how can someone be born when he's old? He's clearly not understanding what's being talked about. Because then he goes into, well, how do I go back into my mother's womb? I can't come out of that. What are you talking about? Do you not know how labor and delivery works? What's wrong with you, Jesus? This doesn't make sense. So clearly, he was on one page. Jesus was on a completely different book. And then in that same story, as he continues to go on and explain to him how the Spirit works and how wind moves, and they're very synonymous, then he goes, well, how can these things be? And he just, he's not grasping. He's totally confused. And yet the... You know, and this story is both misunderstanding and irony because Nicodemus is one of the teachers of the law. He should know this stuff, and yet he's thoroughly confused on what Jesus is talking about. And then in chapter 4, as you get to the woman in the well, she makes this statement, Sir, give me this water that he's been talking about so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw water. Jesus wasn't talking about physical water, but that's where her mind is going. He's talking about something spiritual. She's honing in on, well, here's a well, there's water in it, that's what I need. And she's missing the point at first of what he's getting at. And then one of the, one of the favorite ones I love in the book of John is when he's having this dialogue with um, Pontius Pilate. And at one point, um, Jesus talks to him about being the truth. And Pilate says, well, what is truth? And, and that one, again, it's, in, it's instantly both misunderstanding and irony. Because it's misunderstanding because Pilate doesn't understand that what he's talking to is the embodiment of truth. But he's talking about, you know, politics and, you know, different forms of worship and what's important in life, where Jesus is the actual physical ramifications of what truth looks like. He's not a, rep- he's not a representation of it. He is it. And he's missing that. And it's right in front of his face. Uh, and as you read through that dialogue, John spends a lot of time in that conversation with Pilate Um, which is just odd because Pilate wasn't even a Jew. But John wants you to see the implications of that story, and there's lots of misunderstandings. Um, Same with irony. There's actually a lot more irony. Again, you can't read that because it's too small because there's too many. So as you go through John, you'll hone in with this idea and this filter of what's really being said. Am I giving direct statements, or is there underlying things that I'm trying to pick up? And there's a whole lot. Again, this is not a complete list if you can read it, which is, that's impressive if you can. But there's, there's, there's tons of them in there. He mentions it over and over again. And a few highlights just to hit on. Chapter 1, and as we mentioned before in week 1, the prologue gives you every theme you're going to see through the book of John. And in John 1, verse 10, in his prologue, he says, He was in the world, referring to Jesus, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know, and that word know means understand, did not know him. So this is John's intro into this idea of misunderstandings and irony that he's going to develop through his book. But it's ironic because everything that is, everything that was made, there was nothing that was made that wasn't made through him. All this stuff is here, and now the creator God comes into that world, and this world doesn't have a clue who he is. They don't recognize him. They don't know him. They, most of them want nothing to do with him, yet he's the one that gave them all of their knowledge. He gave them all of their insight and everything that they possess. But it's just ironic because they don't care. It's not a misunderstanding. It's just a complete rejection because they don't even know how to grasp this. Yes, sir. One thing I was just thinking about when you brought that up is, let's say, uh, 
let's look at Nicodemus. He, he was wanting to understand the Lord, but it seems like the Jews couldn't in a lot of ways yeah. because they're used to being um, very legalistic. Thou shalt. Here's the, yeah. here's the word. Here's the ordinances. Here's what we follow from God. And it took a while for them to start understanding these nuances. Correct. And I think that Jesus was trying to bring forward. He's not teaching like a typical ordinance, a Jewish ordinance in Thou Shalt. He's teaching at another level that they were struggling to understand. And I think Nicodemus truly wanted to understand. Yeah. Yeah. So the comment was Nicodemus wanted to understand what Jesus was saying, but it's difficult for him because Jesus was talking in a way that they had never heard before. He was teaching in a manner that they weren't used to because they were used to uh, like a legalistic point of view. Here's the rules. Follow these. Do these things. They were not used to a personal relationship with the God of the universe. And you, and you hear it multiple times. Um, it's when the soldiers were told to go arrest him and they go back to the Pharisees and they say, well, no one's ever taught like this man has before. We don't, we don't know what to do with him because he's not teaching the way we're used to. Um, so yes, that's an excellent point. They most of them, you get the impression, especially the ones like Nicodemus and the ones later um, who come and when he's taken off the cross, you know, the ones who came in secret because they didn't want to be caught, they wanted to learn something. They were hungry for something, but they were afraid of the society they were in and of the culture they were in because they were going to be oppressed. Um, so yes, excellent point. Thank you. Um, moving on in different ironies in John, uh, again, going back to Nicodemus, uh, verse three, or chapter 3, verse 9. Jesus says to him, you're the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. And the ironic part then is the teacher who's supposed to teach needs to go back and become a student because he doesn't understand what's happening. He's missing the point. Um, and Jesus just, you know, kind of, not aggressively, but very uh, in his face. You need to know these things. How can you not? I mean, it's almost a sarcastic comment, I think, when we, how we take it. I'm not sure if that's what he meant originally, but uh, it's, quite, it's quite entertaining as you start reading that story. Um, and then you get into chapter 11, um, and this is the prophecy that um, Caiaphas makes when he's talking, when they're, when they're gathering together amongst the Jewish leaders and they're plotting how to kill Jesus. Caiaphas makes this statement in chapter 11, 49 through 50. He says, you know nothing at all, speaking to the other Pharisees and Sadducees, nor are you taking into account that it is in your best interest that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish instead. And if you continue to read that account, John then explains what he's saying. Um, Caiaphas thinks that if we kill Jesus, then the revolt will stop, these people will shut up, and the Romans will leave us alone and we'll be able to maintain our position because this, you know, Jesus movement will be crushed. But what he didn't understand was that as the high priest, he was prophesying about the death of Jesus to come, and that that death of Jesus was one man accounting for the nations. So completely misunderstood what he was saying, which then just makes the whole statement extremely ironic because it was not at all what he intended, but it's exactly what God had intended. I want to read you a quote. Um, this man's name is Andreas Kostenberger, uh, and I always have to copy and paste the two little dots because I've yet to figure out how to type them in Word. Um, but his book on a theology of John's Gospels and Letters, he has this to say about misunderstandings. In terms of their effect on the reader, the misunderstandings keep readers' interest by presenting them with riddles they must solve in order to progress to a fuller spiritual understanding of various aspects of Jesus' mission. The misunderstandings thus serve as devices aiming to engage the reader and to convey spiritual truth, especially with regard to Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Similar in effect to parables, misunderstandings draw a line between insiders who understand a given spiritual truth once explicated and outsiders who do not. So what he's getting at is that as you start reading these stories, again, like mentioned earlier, you become the like elite group of people who understand what's happening in the story. And as you read it over and over and over again, you pick up different nuances, you pick up different themes, and things start to just become more clear as you like invest yourself um, into these texts and into the words. And you'll notice too, unless you haven't already, there are no parables in the book of John which stands out predominantly uh, compared to the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But his opinion is that these misunderstandings are the parables. These are the lessons trying to be taught. And if you can understand them and work through them, then you start to fe- you start to get through some of the confusion that most people see when they first approach Jesus, and you start to see something um, that you can start to wrap your mind around, that you can hold on to, and that can build your faith. And so actually, we're going to take a moment, um, and we're going to read the entire chapter 9, because you're going to come across lots of misunderstandings and irony in there. It shouldn't take long, um, but I want to read it in its entirety. And as we read, try to, try to see if you can notice any of these uh, misunderstandings and ironies as we go through it. And I'll put it on the wall behind us. Hopefully you can see that. Um, and this is the New American Standard Version, I believe, the 2020. So chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must carry out the works of him who sent me, as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spit on the ground and made mud from the saliva and applied the mud to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he left and washed and came back seeing. So the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. The man himself kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought the man who was previously blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath on that day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied mud to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a dissension among them. So they said again to the man who was blind, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it about him, that he had been born that he had been blind and had received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents then answered and said, We know that this is our son, and that he has been born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already reached the decision that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be excommunicated from the synagogue. It was for this reason that his parents said, 
He is of age. Ask him. So for a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They spoke abusively to him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is the amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if someone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and yet you are teaching us? So they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and upon finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered by saying, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, I believe, Lord. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those who were with him from the Pharisees heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you maintain, we see, your sin remains. Before we have opening to see what you noticed, I just want to mention a few quick things. This is an exceedingly long passage. It's the only example, I think, throughout the entire Gospels where you get the miracle and then you get the community's response. There is no other account that I'm familiar with, correct me if I'm wrong, um, where we get to see how this miracle impacted the leaders and what they did with this information. I mean, they essentially put this man on trial. um, And if you can't fall in love with this blind man, then I don't know how else to make you because he is one of a kind. Uh, He was not, he seemed a little, maybe a little timid at first. You know, quick one-liners, this is how it happened. But then near the end of the story, he's clearly like, you guys aren't getting it. You're not listening to me. Um, So he's an exciting guy to get to know. Uh, But there's so much content spent outside of direct phrases from Jesus. Jesus isn't even in the scene through most of this passage. And just just something to observe. I also want to make a quick mention of what's the significance of the Pool of Siloam. Um, It also has other names, uh, Shiloh and Shila. It's specifically mentioned in Isaiah 8, 6, and that's what that passage says on the screen. Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh, the contents of of Isaiah 8 is that the people are rejecting God. They're rejecting his sovereignty, his mercy, his blessings, and they're choosing uh, worldly avenues, evil kings, and they're seeking after their own desires. So the Pool of Siloam has these connotations of um, if you if you seek the pool uh, in a context, then you're seeking God. And that's part of, uh, we're going to get to that in a minute, but just uh, keep that in mind of this pool. And then notice too, if you were counting, uh, the word no, at least in the New American Standard Version, occurs 11 times. And this is not a mental information no. It's not, I have something, I, le- I read it, and so now I know. This word no always refers to something you have seen. Um, it's, it's calling back on this idea of being a witness. And so you know something because you experienced it. 
And if you'll indulge me for a moment, I'd like to then take that, that idea of the word no and rewrite, for this moment's sake, uh, verse 39. It would then read, so that those who do not know the messianic truth may know it. And those who know it falsely may become aware of the lies they have hold fast to. So if you, again, as you start reading through, um, even in this, this story, and you, can, and you see the misunderstandings, you see the ironies, and as um, Kostenberger points out, if you can start to, you know, working out these riddles, what's really happening, what's really being said, you'll start to notice things, and they'll just light up. And then one more side comment, because I just thought it was super interesting. Uh, the pools of Siloam, uh, you can go to them today. They exist. You can visit them. They were, they were around in the early 1900s, um, and then they built some stuff over it. And then in 2004, um, they were digging a new waste uh, pipe in the area, and they discovered these steps again. And so they started excavating them, and I believe currently they are open to the public. You can go visit them in Jerusalem. They're just down the hill um, from the Temple Mount, where, they're, where they're, the existing temple is, where they believe the original temples were. Um, but I just thought it was fascinating how big this thing was. So it's estimated to be 190 feet by 160 feet, and it's essentially, it's more than twice the size of an Olympic swimming pool. So it was huge. Uh, I just thought that was super cool. So uh, when you start looking up stuff, there's all, I mean, Google will take you all kinds of places. But if you're ever interested in something you read, what is this? What does this mean? I mean, hundreds, thousands of people have spent years uh, collecting information on this stuff. It's at your fingertips. You don't even have to go to the library. Uh, and it comes with pictures. So if you're ever curious about something, look it up. Because I guarantee you, a lot of other people before you have been curious too. So super fascinating. So now we get back to chapter 9 of John. Um, misunderstandings. Anything that stuck out to you that you noticed as, you re- as we were reading through that story? The big one at the beginning, who sinned? It had to be sinned, right? Sin was the line. Yeah. Who sinned? Yeah, so the comment was the, the, very, the very beginning of the story, the apostles are making the statement, well, who sinned? It was clear that this man or his parents, somebody sinned that this man was born blind. Um, clearly a misunderstanding of his blindness. Any others? Terry Major and the irony of the Lord putting mud in his eyes and saying, Go find the pool. Yeah. He's blind. Yeah. But it was an arbitrary test of faith. If he hadn't gone to the pool, if he hadn't found it or got assistance, whatever, his eyes wouldn't have been healed. The Lord could have easily healed him instantly without this search, without this test of him having to go do something. Yeah. He did it because of faith. Yeah, so the comment was, you know, Jesus puts mud on the guy's eyes. He's blind. He can't see. And then he tells him, go, go walk, because we don't know where they're at at this exact moment. So we go walk the streets. Go to the pool. I mean, the guy's blind. Does he know where to go? Does someone have to help him? You know, did he just say, this man's nuts. He just spit in mud. And we're not even going to talk about the fact today that spitting, um, you were unclean if someone spit touched you. So a whole different topic. Um, but this, this man clearly... Uh, he could have just walked away. I mean, like, this guy's nuts. I'm not going to listen to this guy. What's he doing? Spitting on people? This is gross. Um, but he, it, it, we're not specifically told why he did this, what the implications were, but yeah, there's strong reference to it. It seems like it's a test for this man. Are you going to believe me? Um, and all throughout, just not John's, but all the Gospels, you keep coming across this theme of these people don't believe. And, when they, and you'll notice it, especially um, in the early part of John, that he 
Jesus almost seems hindered in his ability to perform signs and wonders because the people didn't believe. It's like, it's, which is just real. I mean, spend some time with that. Jesus couldn't do something because we didn't believe in him. You know, paint that picture on the world we live in today and, and, and it's, it's just going to mess with you. Because, what do you mean? Jesus is all-powerful, all-knowing. Um, like the servant, uh, the man who's, I can't remember now, his child who was sick, Jesus said he's healed instantly. You know, why didn't he just heal this man instantly? We're not exactly told. Um, I do think there's, there's reasons behind it when you spend time with it. But yeah, clearly this seemed like a test of this man's faith. To make an effort in all of his miracles of breaking the traditions and the ordinances of the Jews. When you really look at almost every miracle, yeah. breaking some ordinance or regulation of the Jews. Yeah, so the comment was that... Oh, yeah. That's a good example right there. Yeah, so Jesus is constantly um, combating a lot of traditions of the Jews as you look at the miracles he performs. And you'll notice, uh, and I haven't gone back and checked, but it seems like almost all the miracles in John all happen on a Sabbath. And somehow the leaders take that to say, oh, you're breaking our rules, you're breaking our laws. And we'll touch on that here in just a minute. But Jesus is intentionally doing all of these things. Every act, every word, every place he goes, everything he does, all has a purpose. Um, and I've been told, I've read this comment, although I haven't done it myself to check, but I'm told that in Luke, every miracle that Jesus performs is directly to counteract um, the Levitical requirements of what makes someone unclean. So he, he intentionally does all these things where had you done that under uh, Judean law, you would have been unclean. But Jesus is going to those people. You know, leprosy, uh, spit, all those kinds of things. Yes, sir. You know, you make a really good point. Jesus could have one day just said, everybody's healed, and everybody in the world would have been healed instantly. Yeah. And that wasn't his purpose here. No. So the miracles were not to heal people. He wasn't there to relieve physical suffering, although he did that in the book. Yeah. He had a purpose behind it, and it was to point him as a yeah, so the comment was, Jesus could have healed everyone instantly if he'd wanted to, but that wasn't his focus. That wasn't his mission. You know? And then we get that exactly in John 20. Why did he come? Why did he perform these signs? So that you would believe in the Messiah and that in his name you would have life. But we associate life with healing, with, oh, I'm healthy, I'm able to do the things I want. But that's, not what, that's not the life that we're talking about here. And again, that's next week. We'll get there, but thank you for that. Yes, sir. Uh, there are a lot of uh, sorry so the comment was is this story with the washing of his eyes related to baptism um, there's lots of opinions who, who think it is um, some people seem to take it a little extreme and they'll use it to define ways in which you should be baptized immersion your face sprinkling it doesn't seem like that's at all what John's trying to get out here because uh, again what is John 20 trying to tell us that all these stories are meant so you can believe in the Messiah. Um, I think there are connotations to potentially baptisms, especially once you get to where he's with the apostles and he washes them, and Peter makes that claim, you know, well, wash all of me then, not just my feet. You know, there's all kinds of those little sayings throughout, and I think they do point to a bigger picture of uh, maybe not just, maybe not directly baptism in water, but this overall arching theme of, you know, being cleansed. Um, and taking that uh, Levitical way of cleansing and turning it into a spiritual way of cleansing by the Holy Spirit, absolutely. Uh, any others? Yes, sir. So Simone being Shaloa, which is a reference back to Jesus in Genesis 49, the original thought, Shiloh, is Shiloh goes, and you'll bring your obedience to the people. So it's almost like you know, the answer is Jesus, even yeah. when you think of 
Jesus, and that Jesus does a wrong thing. And that is, there's a blind man who's actually the only one that sees. Yeah. Everyone else will be a Yeah. Yeah. So one of the one of the comments was uh, Shiloh refers to Jesus, and that's a good reference. I forgot about that one. Going back to Genesis, the Shiloh will come, um, and that's that's when Jacob's talking to his sons, right? Is that near? Or I'm forgetting now. Yeah. So so Jacob's talking about the prophetic things for his twelve sons, and he mentions the Shiloh will come one day, um, and so the pool definitely has references back to Jesus in that context, and yeah. Uh, the, that one of the ironies we'll see here in just a second is, yeah, the, the blind man is the only one who sees, you know. He's the only one who sees Jesus, and I think we mentioned it last week, but he's also the only one in the entire book of John that worships Jesus. We're not given an account of anybody else, not even the apostles. And so this man who was blind, who now sees, who now really sees, not just physically, but he's seeing, you know, the meta-meaning of who this man Jesus is, and he's just pulled to worship him. Um, which, again, we're supposed to, we're supposed to see that see what this man's response was and have a similar uh, response. So some of the ones I just wanted to point out as we go through, um, again, yes, verse 2, who sent this man or his parents that he would be born blind? This was a very predominant theme in Judaism. Sin meant there was something wrong with you. Or sorry, other way around. There was something wrong with you because you sinned. Um, They had this connotations deep-rooted in their culture. Um, And you can get there... I think through misunderstanding of the Old Testament, when you read through the characteristics of God in Exodus 34, his, you see that and he goes, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to withhold judgment for the generations, you know, the third and fourth generations. But then when you read that in a little bit better context, that's, he's not referring to generational sin. Um, he's referring to each generation's sin. So this man wasn't born blind because how did he sin before he was born? Um, and it wasn't because of his parents. And I forgot to look them up, but I know there's, there's some references to um, God wasn't going to hold the son accountable for the father's sin. Um, same thing. The man wasn't blind because of his parents or because of him. But as the story goes on, he was blind so that God could work wonders through him. And that's exactly what he did. Um, verses 8 through 9, this is funny. Uh, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? The neighbors are even confused. Like, does he look different? I mean, maybe his eyes aren't, you know, I know... Depending on, I'm not a medical, but I think depending on the type of blindness, I think your eyes can look differently. Um, so did he look different? It's like, no, that's not really him. You know, I mean, were they, were they just so unwilling to believe that this man could now see that they misunderstood what was happening intentionally so they didn't have to believe it? And then verse 16, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? Clearly Jesus isn't a sinner. Um, but that's what they thought he was. And then... Uh, I don't quite understand how necessarily they went from this miraculous event to clearly it was done by someone who was a sinner. I mean, they had to have all kinds of misunderstandings going on in their mind. But that's where they got to, and that's what they were. That's what their opinion was. Verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And it is at this point that uh, the blind man just kind of almost seems like he loses it. I've told you guys two times already. And even the first two times, he even summarizes it real short. You know, mud, washed, see. And they just, they can't, huh? What are you talking about? How did he do this? They're, they're looking for some kind of explanation. It's almost like they want, they want a natural reason for why this miraculous thing happened so that we don't have to believe in this man, Jesus. They didn't care about the blind man. They cared about the name of Jesus being spread, and they wanted it to stop. And so they were intentionally misunderstanding what was happening to fund their own opinion and their own um, uh, expectations of what they wanted the people to do. And they wanted their own... Um, in their own worldview to be impressed on the people, and they refuse to listen. Uh, verse 29, we do not know where he is from, 
this is a direct contradiction to verse chapter 8 when he tells the scribes, hey, make sure that there's not supposed to be any prophet that comes out of Galilee. They know physically where he came from. That's no mystery. Uh, but they seem to, like, this phrase comes up, I think, again, and I forget where, but they're just willfully ignoring the facts. I mean, they're clearly not spending time taking in what they see. Again, to know meant something you saw. They're ignoring that, and they're, they're staying in their minds. They're staying in their preconceived notions of what should be happening in the world, what the Messiah should look like. Like we talked about, uh, was that, two weeks ago, on what the expected Messiah was supposed to be, and this man wasn't fitting that mold for them, and so they didn't want anything to do with him. And so even all the good things he was doing, uh, they rejected. Uh, later, Jesus will make the comment that people want to stone him, and he kind of sarcastically says, well, for what good deed are you stoning me? And so, well, it's not because of the good things. It's because you made yourself out to be God, you know. They just, their minds weren't getting around it. And then verse 40, we're not blind too, are we? Clearly the misunderstanding is they're incredibly blind. Uh, They can't see because, again, they're stuck in this physical realm. They're thinking that everything I see with my eyeballs in my head is the only thing worth perceiving. And they're not experiencing the God of the universe embodied in this man, Jesus, right in front of them. And so ironies, uh, several. The Pool of Siloam uh, is a big one because it's Jesus. And so if 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 their Old Testament reference is that this is the people refusing to believe in God, and now it's this very pool which causes this miraculous event which has never been done in human history. Go back and read through the Old Testament. You'll find no references of anyone born blind being healed. Um, and, and it seems like in this story, it's the blind man who knows that. The Pharisees and the Sadducees seem to be clueless. The people who are supposed to know this law had forgotten about that. But it's the blind man who knows. And he confesses that later as we, in the story. Uh, verse 16. This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And for those of you who have been reading through, you may be kind of getting annoyed with the fact that John keeps mentioning Sabbath over and over again, um, intentionally mentioning it when miracles happen. And it's because this was Jesus' semi-subtle, but not really, attempt at breaking down uh, their laws. And it's not the law of Moses. It is not the Torah. These are laws which they came up with over time. You know, not the first century Jewish Israelites, but hundreds of years they've been spending time making these laws. And it's, if you look at Mishnah, uh, that's, it's kind of an overarching uh, culmination of the written laws that different rabbis and leaders throughout their generations have come up with, not to, not to directly, not to contradict the law of Moses, but to add detail. Um, and, there's, and there's 39 categories just related to the Sabbath. Uh, and I, I haven't written out, I'm not going to read them all, um, but some things like you can only take so many steps on the Sabbath. I mean, you have to count your steps. You can't take any more. In your house, you can take as many as you want, but outside your house, you're only allowed to take so many. Again, you won't find that in the Torah. It's the rules they came up with to try and, and, and create what they would call a structure for how to observe the Sabbath and to keep it holy. There's only certain things you could carry, um, different weights, reasons. Uh, there's, there's some funny stories. Uh, you spend time looking at it where they'll talk about um, on, on certain uh, Jewish holidays, they'll blow a horn. Um, but they actually they stopped doing that because they were worried that if they forgot the horn, they couldn't carry a horn to another synagogue and, and violate the Sabbath. So they took that out so they didn't have to worry about it. I mean, there's just these little nuances. You're like, what? 
like how does how does this, how does this have to how does this grow in your relationship to God? How does this you know tie back to the Old Testament make sense? Wow, we're way out of time. I'm sorry. Um, anyways, we're going to fly through these. And then talking on something that was mentioned earlier, one of the prominent themes you're going to find in chapter 9 is legalism. That's what was holding these Pharisees back, was their strong grip on legalism and all these rules they'd come up with. Um, and it was destroying them. And, you know, legalism is essentially you're holding on to a law adamantly, and then as far as theology goes, you're holding on to that law more than you're holding on to faith in the Lord and into God. And we're not going to have time to read these, but if you look up Galatians 3 and 1 John 4, he's going to specifically talk against this. And one thing I can't help but share, um, are you frustrated? So 1 John 4 is going to talk about testing the Spirit. And one of the commentaries that um, I came across, he had this great suggestion for how you do that. And he said, well, how often do you get frustrated? How often do you get irritated in your day? And he's, he says, use that as a test to see, you know, are you in the Spirit or not? Not a definitive test. Don't hold me to that. But it's just a way of seeing, you know, Jesus didn't walk around irritated most of the time, didn't see him. And so he's offering that as, if you're constantly irritated, pause and think about why. Spend time with that. Um, We're going to go through this real fast. Did the apostles understand at first? We're just going to blow all these. Um, No, they didn't. As you read through John, it's clear. They didn't understand what was happening until Jesus was glorified, and he was glorified at his death. They were hopelessly clueless. And then I stole from Matthew 26. What did they do in the garden? Peter pulls out his sword. He's ready to fight. He's ready to go to war. This is what they've been waiting for. And then Jesus says, put your sword away, Peter, because that's not the battle we're fighting here. And then John doesn't mention it, but Matthew does. And he says, all the disciples fled. They freaked out and they ran away. They didn't know what to do. They were panicking. But what do we see right after the book of John? Acts 2.4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, which Jesus promised them. Um, John tells us that when the Spirit or the Helper comes, he's going to teach you these things so you have understanding. And then Acts 2.14, Peter, instead of fleeing, he takes his stand with the other 11 in front of the whole nation of Israel uh, when they were in Jerusalem. And he preaches, you know, what's one of the most monumental sermons we've heard. And 3,000 people were saved that day. Um, and then we're told everyone kept feeling a sense of awe in the wonders and signs that the apostles were doing. These were no longer the men who fled from the garden, but these were men who had completely changed their lives because the death and resurrection of Jesus changes people, significantly changes people. They weren't afraid to fight for Jesus because now they understood how they were to fight. And so they went from a deserter to a martyr. Um, Peter, crucified. Andrew, likely crucified. James, he was killed by swords. John, he died of old age, but where it's uh, understanding is there were multiple attempts made to kill him. Philip, he was beheaded, stoned, or crucified. Thomas, murdered by spears. Bartholomew, there's a strong uh, historical reference that he was flayed alive or possibly beheaded, beaten, crucified, or drowned. Matthew, burned, stoned, stabbed, or beheaded. James, the son of Alphaeus, um, was potentially pushed off a temple and then wasn't dead when he fell, and then they beat him, and then they stoned him. Jude, killed, possibly by axes. Simon, crucified or sawn in two. Matthias, stoned or beheaded. These same men who fled from the garden because they didn't know who they were serving now took their lives to the point of death because they understood. There was no longer misunderstandings. They got the irony. They got this message of the story. And they said, this life that I'm in, these things that I see, is not all there is. There's so much more that I want to put my life to. And this is the exact same calling that we have today. 
the exact same. I think we tend to hold the apostles up maybe in a, in a level that we can't achieve, but I don't think that's the case. Jesus is, is offering the same spirit to us, the same possibility to come unto understanding with him, and we need to not be afraid of it. We need to not flee from it, but take it to the point of death and knowing that there's more to come. So if your current understanding of the scriptures leads you to a Jesus that makes you feel guilty, ashamed, or unloved, then you may be misunderstanding the message in life of Messiah Jesus. Because that's not the message he's giving you. And I didn't write it in there, but also, not only if that's how you feel, this shamefulness, but if that's how you think others should feel. If the gospel, in your opinion, makes, is, is meant to make people feel like dirt so that they come to Jesus, that's not the Jesus that you're going to meet in John. Jesus got down on people's levels. He got personal with them. He got into the dirt with them. Um, we're going to look at in weeks to come in chapter 8 with the adulterous woman. You, he seemed like he was on the ground with her. He was holding her, and he did not condemn her. This is a Jesus that cares about us intimately. And I want to give you a reference. Um, Dallas Willard, he's actually the one who, who, where I got the testing of the Spirit, see how frustrated you are. Um, he has a book called Renovation of the Heart, Putting on the Characteristics of Christ. Um, I believe his background is as a, uh, a psychologist. Um, but he takes time to deliberately go through all the areas of a person's life and try to help you hone in on how you convert that into Jesus. And one quote from him is, We don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. And this is exactly what the apostles did. Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah long before the garden, but yet in the garden he fled. And it wasn't until later in his life that he truly believed that everything Jesus said and did was real. And then they lived out their lives as those that were true. So I appreciate your time. We're past. Uh, We're going to get into, hopefully, Lord willing, uh, the topic of life next week. So if you want to spend time in John looking for the word life, please do. Uh, Thank you for your attention, and we'll hopefully see you next week.